So we're on now, and it's Sunday the 17th, and we are in our study, looking at chapter 6 still from License to Kill. This is lesson 5, lesson number 5. So we're taking our time at getting through these uh, scriptures, and they're just full of practicality. As Paul's talking to a congregation that is largely Gentile, if you recall, he's talking to uh, a group of people that are, are writing to a group of people that are uh, just bombarded with all kinds of paganism and legalism and Gnosticism and every other kind of ism that was going on during that day. <clears throat> it's interesting when we look at that because <clears throat> it allows us to draw really specific parallels to our country right now, our society. And that's just to say that, you know, the scriptures are still full of wisdom, they're still on point, they still speak to issues that we need to be aware of and involved in in this day and time. We need to be able to identify a proper response, you know, regarding our world Christian view. But more specifically, we're able to bring our own lives into compliance, if you will, uh, into submission to what the Word of God says about believers and how believers ought to act and how they ought to think. This is what the Word of God does. We're to be a zealous people about that. We're to be uh, a peculiar people. Uh, We're to be uh, noted as being different. Not not an oddball, maybe according to the world standard, which is fine, but noticeably different. Why? Because of the indwelling Holy Spirit of God. And the reality of that Holy Spirit's indwelling is this. Our lives as believers will be changed. They're changed from the onset when we come to Christ, when we put our faith and trust in Him, when we find the truth of the Gospel and make it our own through faith and repentance. Again, nothing, nothing ever happens without repentance. Nothing ever happens without a change of heart, a change of mind that turns us and sends us in a different direction. So when Paul's talking to these folks here from chapter 3, uh, as I said, he's both admonishing them in a gentle kind of way, and he's encouraging them. And when you read the information, it's not negative, and I'm not presenting it as that way, but when you read it, I get the impression it's like, don't do that. I mean, he may be talking about something negative, or why would you want to do that in light of what God has already done and what He's already stated? So a lot of what we have to do when we read these Scriptures is just to look at it from a very practical sense. And Paul appeals to that. I felt necessary since we are in chapter, or not in chapter, but in verse, uh, lesson 5 here, just to go back, we started, of course, with verse 1 in chapter 3, and just read those verses to bring us forward to kind of let us know where we're at, <clears throat> what we've covered, and then we'll begin today uh, in verse 12. So if you want to look at Colossians, and I'm reading from the New King James here, <clears throat> chapter 3, verse 1, If then you were raised with Christ... Seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Therefore, put to death, our key phrase, put to death your members which are on the earth. And he lists fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. But now you yourselves are to put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth, Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. For there is neither Jew nor Greek, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all in all. And we ended last week on a very positive note talking about That ultimately, in all that Paul has brought forth here, all that he's putting before the church at Colossae, he ends here 
by directing them to the person of Christ. And that is our hope. That's how we ended last week. Do we believe that? Do we believe that faith in Christ is what brings us together? You know, we're living in a time right now, current social events uh, reveal the fact that our country is angry. Our country is very angry. I heard a statistic this week uh, from WSB Radio going into work. And uh, I've been having to do training at the police department on the First Amendment and civil disorder and civil disobedience and those kinds of things. Did uh, three classes this past week. And we see there that uh, at least the media would tell us, I don't know how much of it is actual, but much of the nation's in an uproar. WSB did some polls or had some access to poll information and they were talking about something as simple as road rage. And I was shocked, if their information is accurate, this is what they reported, that about a third of drivers, based on the poll, report that they have been in some sort of aggressive action in their vehicle. They've made some sort of aggressive gesture, uh, whether it was a hand gesture or whether it was with their vehicle, uh, talking about actually bumping and ramming people or getting in some kind of cuss fight on the highway over traffic. Okay, a third of the drivers? I'd like to think that's not true, but if it's half true, that's still uh, bizarre, if you ask me. So are we living in an angry country right now? We're living in a, at a time when people are distrusting of the political system and so forth. We all know what's going on. Things that we see on a daily basis, how tempting it is to go there this morning, uh, but we can't do that because we're going to give attention to Scripture this morning and not politics. So don't let me go there. Give me the old... Okay. <laughs> Look, in verse 12, where we pick up today, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, and long-suffering. We've looked at similar lists before that Paul provides to the church, but here we want to begin <clears throat> by looking at these words uh, into uh, certain uh, words I want to take out of this verse and look at. Of course, what jumps out at us, first of all, uh, is election. Thank you so much, brother. <clears throat> is the word elect. He calls and refers to us as the elect of God. If you have a New American Standard Bible, I think it reads, uh, those who have been chosen. Is what you read? Okay. Uh, a very clear and accurate interpretation. Uh, but he's talking here about the divine truth of election, which of course is clearly taught <clears throat> in Scripture. You know, when I left uh, my former church of 41 years, which is just your typical Southern Baptist church, Armenian church, and came to uh, Faith Community Church after being exposed to like most people, MacArthur's ministry and so forth out of California for many, many years, uh, I thought that we would see something probably about election or the sovereignty of God and the doctrines of grace and so on and so forth virtually every time we met, okay, every time we, and uh, I've been here, we're in our fourth year, and I think I can count the specific times that we've studied the doctrine particularly on one hand maybe even on three fingers. Uh, because, you know, as Reformed Baptists, Reformed in our faith, uh, we understand that for what it is. It, it does drive, uh, in many respects, well, it does the way that we interpret Scripture, obviously. Uh, but it's such, a, it's such an understanding. It's so clear to us. We accept it just like He died and rose again. And we move on. You know what I'm talking about? We move on. But it's interesting as you go back and you look at how many times the Bible talks about the fact that we are an elect people. That God has chosen. I remember, I can remember being in debates with people about this. I remember being on the phone one time as a, as a young Christian. I was 20, 21 years old. And a girl I was dating then put a guy on the phone who had been talking to her about... Calvinism, as it was always referred to in that day. This is back in the 70s, okay? And I got in this debate with this guy. And looking back on all the arguments that I made with him in defending my uh, Arminian stance, 
It was based solely on what I understood, what I felt was right, how I could not see how God could blah, blah, blah. And you'll never get to any kind of understanding about the the sovereign grace of God if you do that. Well, on the other hand, if you read the Bible, and if you read it studiously, and if you go through and mark, you know, do the work and look at what He says about His sovereignty, I give it to you on a broad perspective, all the aspects of His sovereignty, everywhere that it's put forth, and you believe the Word of God, and that's your standard, not how you feel about it, but you believe the Word of God, then you'll, you'll have some challenges, challenges that will lead you ultimately to the right conclusions. What I did to settle this, and I've shared it with the class, but this class looks like it's about half different from the first time I taught this class. I'll share it with you again, but I, <clears throat> I try to read through the Bible every other year, and I do, and I marked every single verse that had anything to do with the sovereignty of God in, in any way. If it was sovereignty and salvation, if it was His sovereignty in the way He directs nations or whatever, first one thing and another. I marked every single verse as studiously as I could, and I admit that I missed some because now when I read through, I, thought, I don't have that marked, and I'll go back and mark some more. But I took all those, and after I got up to about 180 eight, I believe it was, verses out of a number of different passages, I began to start getting the message about the sovereignty of God. And then I was able to go back and take all of that information and develop categories. I think I had eight or nine categories, and I would plug in this information. If it dealt with sovereignty and salvation, I'd put it over here. As I said, if it dealt with His sovereignty in the direction of the nations or whatever, I'd put it over here. A number of, the number of times chosen and elect was uh, translated in the Bible. I put that in there. And then the Word of God convinced me. The Word of God convinced me. And that's what I just very simply put to you this morning if you're still on the fence about this issue of God's election of believers. I used to think that if, you know, just like anyone would think, if God has elected, then why do this or why do that? Why bother uh, with evangelism? Why give as much attention to my own uh, personal sanctification? You know, those are things that go through your mind. We understand through the truth of God's Word that all of that is of God. All of it is necessary. I love the expression, the two parallel truths. I think that brings it down, and we'll look at that specifically here in just a moment. But the truth of divine election is clearly taught in Scripture. And he refers to us this way. Christ chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, it says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. Paul writes to the church at Thessalonica saying uh, and referring to your election by God in 1 Thessalonians 1, 4 as well. And then again, Paul again assures the Thessalonians stating that God from the beginning, from the very beginning, chose you for salvation. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. And we see God's sovereignty in, other, in many other passages. I have a, if you ever want access to the document that I created to get your study going or to go back and look at some things, I'll be happy to share that with you. From 2 Timothy chapter 1, beginning with verse 8, he says, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, His prisoner, but, but, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purposes and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus, again he says, before time began, 2 Timothy 1, 8 and 9. So we take a moment to stop and look at God on a, on a grander scale. The God of all eternity. Sovereign God who brings it all together. And mine and your salvation is of course including that if you belong to Christ. I love the clarity of Acts chapter 13 verse 48b. When I get challenged a lot in this area, I like to go to this verse because it simply says, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. What do you do with that if you're on the fence? 
What do you do with those kinds of verses? Do they mean exactly what they say? And if so, what about all the other things? What about responsibility on our part? What about our continual sanctification? How does all this fit in? And we could go there and, and study all that tonight we, or today, but we, we need to move on to start with those verses if you have an inkling to do that and move forward. Believers' names have been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. In Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, and 17, verse 8. In fact, there it talks about the destruction of those who are not written in the book. So the implication is that there is a book, the names were written in it by God from the beginning, from the foundation, or before time began. And uh, he refers to it there in the Revelation. So, a huge, huge topic. But this morning, as believers, we rest in the sovereignty of God. We rest in what He has done for us. And then he tells us in this same verse, he stays uh, on this, uh, this thought about putting stuff on and taking stuff off. We've covered that virtually in every lesson that we've had here from Colossians. Again, reminding you he's talking about the imagery is taking off old clothes and putting on new clothes and so forth. And he gives us another list of stuff that we're supposed to put on here. Things that we're supposed to make a part of our life. This should be our desire. And he talks here about tender mercies. Tender mercies. And we're talking about the attitude of the believer. The attitude of a believer that's initially changed, but continually changed because of the indwelling Spirit. Because of the power of God, because of the Word of God in a person's life, that person's character, that person's attitude, our character, our attitude as believers, changes and continues to change. Because our sanctification continues. He mentions this translation as tender mercies, to have a heart of compassion for others. A heart of compassion for others. Now, I did hear a lot of truth in my former Armenian fellowship, and I remember a dear saint of God, a pastor named K.B. Robertson. And I remember a simple saying that he, he would mention a couple of times. and He would simply say, a Christian without compassion is a contradiction. I can remember him saying that talking about how when our lives change in Christ, now we can see more clearly because of what's happened to us, because we've come to terms with our own sin, the depth of our own sin, now we can see more clearly the potential of life and grace in other people. We can see that, no matter how bad they seemingly are. Again, why? Because we know what we were. We know what God has changed us from. We know the great potential that's there. And it's all about God. It changes the way we think about others and the way that we see others. A common Hebrew saying, I understand this phrase, tender mercies, which actually speaks and it draws the attention of the hearer. When you say that in its original language, it draws the attention of the hearer to the internal organs of a person. The viscera, if you will. Uh, we would say nowadays, we would make reference to having a gut feeling about something. Or as it's shared, I think in your notes there, uh, a heartfelt position. Something that grips us. Something that grabs us. We, we genuinely care. It's not just words. It's not just a show. We're not just a, a part of the program. We've been changed. And that which comes out of us exemplifies the fact that Christ is there. There's a new presence. And the way we feel about each other is very, very important. The way we feel about other people, not in our church, the way that we see our obligations and to minister is more than an obligation. It's a desire. Why? Because of the great potential that's there for change, which God affects. He still has put it upon us to be available to do the work. That's what the church does. To live Christ, to walk Christ, to speak Christ. That's the way He's chosen to do it. doesn't matter about what He's directed from His sovereign will. He's chosen to do it this way. The foolishness of preaching. How will they hear without 
a preacher, going and sharing, holding people accountable. Quite frankly, loving them enough to become involved in their lives. No matter how uh, simple it may be. It may be, the, in my case, the, the uh, Asian lady across the counter where I get my laundry done or wherever. If you're of a mind to share Christ, if you're of a mind to care about people and to give them uh, hope and to give them information about why you believe like you believe, I assure you, I assure you that God will open up those doors. That's what He does. The Holy Spirit goes before us and prepares our way in that regard. So that's what He does. Opportunities to display tender mercies to people. Don't you think people want to hear that nowadays? And you got a battle to fight right off because people are skeptical. You know, the first thing they think is, what do you want from me? Okay, are you getting points for this or something? You know, they question your motivation just to love people. I'm in a new work environment. And I have to be careful because I'm being taped. I don't want to share current endeavors, you know, but... uh, there are opportunities to share with folks and you pray with folks. This is just a marvelous thing. You pray for people that you work with, people in your family. You approach God, as it says here, you know, uh, with a heartfelt desire to see people change, to see people brought to a point when they're more ready, uh, ready to receive, if you will, the true Word of God. And you step back and you see what God begins to do just by making yourself available. It'll increase your faith is what it'll do. It'll get you excited. It'll let you know for sure who's sovereign and who's in charge because He's there and He wants to do those very things. Let's move on. Kindness is the next word that I want to take from verse 12. He speaks of kindness, a grace that pervades the whole person. Is everything about you kind? Does kindness describe you and your whole person? Or do you reserve a part of your personality that can be unkind? You may even justify it by saying, well, you know, now there are times, there are times when you need to, to nut up, when you need, to, you need to crack down, okay? You need to, give it, uh, you need to give it straight and hard and so on and so forth. Do we find that anywhere in the nature of Christ? Apart from Him clearing the temples... You know, don't see that. But it's talking about, again, a, a uh, what's the word? A position within us that characterizes us. Not just something that we can, you know, choose from time to time to line up under. You know, on this day I'm going to be kind, or I'm going to be kind to this person because they've been kind to me. It's not talking about that. It's talking about a person who exudes kindness now because of the change that has taken place within them. In Matthew 11.30, Jesus talks about His yoke being easy. And I mention that because uh, the commentary says this is the exact same word and phrase that's used when Jesus is talking about His yoke being easy. Don't you like being around kind people? You do. I know I do. It gets people's attention. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, he says, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal to him. And he says this. Now, I'm going to pull a couple of things together here with this verse, but in verse 28 of Matthew 11, he says, Come to me, all you who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly, kind, gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And I read Matthew 11, 27, 28, and 29. But why is this verse of particular interest here? I first looked at it because it's again talking about kindness, which is what we're looking at, but it also brings something together here. Did you notice? And I have to admit, for many, many years I read over this until I was taught better. But note that in verse 27 that Jesus speaks of it as being His will or the will of the Son and the Son's will to reveal us to the Father, right? Now we just got through talking about that when we were talking about election. It's God's will 
It has to be His will. It's His desire. It's His work to reveal us to the Father. In fact, He says it doesn't happen any other way, right? It happens because of His will. This refers to His election or choice of us as discussed earlier in Colossians 3.12 when we were looking at that, the verse above. Jesus then, in verse 28, turns right around and issues a call for all to come to Him. Do you see that? So in these three verses, we see the two parallels that I was talking about. God's sovereignty, for it's Christ that wills, Christ determines, Christ presents to the Father. And then He turns right around, as I said, and says for everybody to come. Come unto Me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So it takes us back to these two parallel truths. And you have it right there from Christ in three verses, 27, 28, and 29. He does the presenting before God according to His own purposes. And yet, we still have the responsibility to hear the Word of God, to respond to the Word of God. And therefore, we have the responsibility as believers to share the Word of God, to preach and to teach the Word of God. Now, to be sure, can God wave His hand? Can He wave His hand and make it all happen? Certainly He can. But the fact is, He's not chosen to do it that way. That's not what He does. That's not what the Word of God says. So I use that by way of example. Look at humility, the next verse, or the next word from the verse, which, of course, is the antithesis of love self-concern, or maybe I should say self-love. There is a genuine humility and there is a false humility. A genuine humility and a false humility. Originally, if you study the Word, you'll find that when people talked about humility, especially in that day, it was a negative in a negative context. It was a negative word. It was like a weakness is the way it was presented. But it changed over time. And now we understand, and we certainly understand from the Word of God, that it's absolutely necessary. And it absolutely follows a person who knows what they've been redeemed from. This is the key. This is the key. And it'd be tempting to stop here and go back, say, for instance, to uh, Luke chapter 7, where Jesus is at Simon's house, Pharisee, and, and He gives the little story there about you know, people who, one who was forgiven a little, one who was forgiven much. And he asked the question, who's going to love him the most? And Simon the Pharisee says, well, I guess the one whom he forgave the most. And he says, you've answered it right. You know, and he's talking about the woman who was washing his feet and, you know, cleaning up his feet with her hair and all that kind of thing. When we understand fully and clearly what we've been redeemed from, it increases our love for God, does it not? Yeah. When you've been saved from something or rescued from something, I don't mean in a spiritual sense right now, I want you to identify with that, that feeling of euphoria that comes over you when you realize that you've dodged the bullet, right? Okay, that someone has maybe saved you physically, pulled you away from an uh, approaching vehicle or something, or kept you from falling or whatever. You know what I'm talking about? That little sense of euphoria that grips you and you're, you're all of a sudden immensely thankful. I'm always amazed at the things that come out of people's mouths when they realize that they've been spared tragedy. They get real wordy sometimes. They, get, they confess. I've seen it happen. Oh, I mean, I don't deserve... You know, seen it happen. That should be our attitude. We never want to forget the sacrifice that has been made and what God has done for us. So let me ask you this. Why is humility so necessary for ministry? Now when I say ministry, I don't, I don't mean particularly pastors, elders, and deacons and so forth. I mean our ministry, our credibility, our witness, if you will. Why is humility so necessary for ministry? Why do you think? <clears throat> That's a question. Helps us to prefer others. Prefer others? Okay, it gives us a heart. For, for others. What else? Because of the type of people that you come across in ministry from all walks of life, all different situations. So you can't 
give you this situation because of the fact that you're going to come across so many wide right. It erodes, it erodes the confidence that a person might have in us. A lack of humility automatically throws the average person into skepticism about us, about the things that we're saying. And if that happens, then they question our wisdom. They question our judgment, right? They question, uh, in the Christian sense, our, perhaps our knowledge of the Word. Why? Because we're not humble. And if we're not humble, we're being driven by a different force. We're being driven by selfishness. We're being driven perhaps by pride, or maybe I should say most definitely by pride. And it throws a skepticism on everything. And then we struggle to make sure that it's not a false humility that we're putting forth, because that's double bad if you ask me. Somebody who's trying to use the guise of humility... Not actual humility. You know what? The closer, the closer we stay to understanding, again I say it, what God has done for us, what has been accomplished for us, we stay there. We stay mindful of that. I don't think you'll have a problem with humility. You won't. Because you'll know and you'll be reminded about where you were, what you deserved, what, you, what God has done for you, you'll begin to understand not why are some elected, but why is anybody, why is anybody picked to survive for all eternity? Why? It's out of the goodness and grace of God, out of His elective will, His predeterminate will. That's how holy and righteous He is. You and I will never measure up. We'll never stack up. We'll never be good enough. It's all of His grace, His mercy. The question is, do we believe that? Are we trusting in His finished work? Is that what we're all about? That is the simple, the simple gospel, humility. Well, we could go on, but let's look at meekness. Did a light just come on? Okay. Meekness. Which again, of course, in the New American Standard is rendered gentleness the willingness, if you will, to suffer injury rather than to inflict it. Why would we choose, choose, mind you, to suffer injury rather than inflict it? Why would we choose to do that? Not a natural thing to do, is it, if you've been attacked or been hurt? Why would we choose? By way of example... We saw him turn the other cheek, didn't we? Many times. What else? Good. She says to not taint our testimony. And that is to say that we know that people expect something different from us. Do they not? That's true. Meekness. Meekness. And I love what he said. He says it's the attitude of people who know they are redeemed sinners. Once again, we're back to that theme. It's the attitude of people who know that they are redeemed sinners. Meekness is not weakness. It's not. It's a disposition. It's an attitude that initially, I would say, looks, as we would say, for the best in people, for the best in circumstances. Not because we're silly and we can be led over a cliff with some pipe dream, but no, because we know and we believe in the potential for good through Christ and everyone, we know that we don't have that potential, but God can make that happen. Meekness. And it's an interesting, interesting attitude that we are to have. Today, in a macho world, and I work in a quasi-military organization that seems to fight against these types of things, and it is a balance. I mean, you can't in police work, you can't you know, go out, and, and, and I don't have to do this every day. I work in training, but in my past police life I did. You go out, and you get in this car, and you're by yourself, and I never worked with a partner ever in my 38 years. You go out and you subject yourself to the potential danger. You have to have a certain mindset in order to survive, in order to be quick in your thoughts, quick in your actions. But you have to understand this so as to be able to cut that off, 
you know, when you go home and put it aside and, and uh, understand it for what it is, use it in its place, but don't let it dominate the way you talk to your wife. Uh, don't let it influence the way you discipline your children. That's, that's different. It's a tool. It's necessary. It's an understanding we have to have. Is that a raised hand back there? Yeah, it's what we were saying, that it becomes a part of us. It's to exude. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, it wouldn't be odd in this world to be accused of being too nice. Okay. Too nice for your own good. Nice to the point that it sets you up as a target. It sets you up as being identified as weak. That's the way the world might see it. But not according to God. No, the people of God are strong. And you might say they're strong enough to be humble. They're strong enough to exude meekness in their life. So it's not going to change. The world's view and the world's expectation is not going to have one iota of influence on the clear commands of Scripture. This is the way that, not that we're just to adopt but this is how we will be again. This is what the Spirit of God does. It changes us. So we talk about meekness. And then he mentions long-suffering. Long-suffering. And of course, it's the word often rendered patience. Again, in the NESB, it's patience. And I like this Greek word here. I don't, <clears throat> I don't, I, obviously, I don't read Greek. But every now and then I hit on a Greek word that I really like to say. Okay, macrothumia. Okay. But this is patience. And if you study patience, you'll, you'll discover there's at least two words in the original language that's translated patience. However, they're quite different. One word, as Macrothumia here, it talks about patience with people, which is interesting. Because Scripture distinguishes in regarding patience with people and patience with circumstances. Two different words. So when you're studying, make sure you know, you know which one you're looking at. And here it is talking about uh, patience with people. It's people who do not resort, quite frankly, they do not resort to anger with others. That's not what they resort to. Do you not work with people or have people in your own families or across the neighborhood fence? And you already know how far you can go with them, right? And talking about something. You know that there are probably key words or key themes or maybe it's just a matter of duration with them sometimes you get to a certain point and uh, they're going to go off on you they're going to shut down they're going to become angry but no patience again fruit of the holy spirit that means if you don't have the holy spirit you don't have it you don't have it you might have something that looks like it you might have something that's you know quite temporary quite temporary in its presence in your life But the patience that comes from possessing the Holy Spirit of God, rest assured, is that which is empowered by the Spirit of God. That makes it supernatural. That makes it a part of the new Christian character, the new Christian nature. You don't have it any other way. So you don't have any hope of patience apart from the indwelling Spirit of Christ. You may have something... But weak, if you don't, you've you're still got that seething and all that's going on inside and all that that's just burning up energy and so on and so forth and things that are storing up in your heart and mind that are probably going to come out one day again because you do not possess the Holy Spirit of God. But not so if you possess true patience, which again I say is a gift of the Holy Spirit of God. Long-suffering. Do not resort to anger with others. And I've got a quote here from William Barclay. I love this. Listen. He says, This is the spirit which never loses its patience with its fellow men. Their foolishness and their unteachability never drive it to cynicism or despair. Their insults and their ill treatment never drive it to bitterness or wrath. That's a high standard, isn't it? But this is how we work and think. And when we depart from that, in other words, when we uh, display an attitude of impatience, it's going against our new Christian character. 
Do you realize that? Going against it. Yes, we can develop this. We can, we, we, uh, can be mindful of our progressive sanctification, if, if you will. And we can identify areas in which we want to improve. You can start with those nine gifts of the Spirit. You can look at that. Patience would be on a lot of people's lists. They'd say, I need more patience. Let me caution you right here. Okay. What happens when you pray for patience? God gives you some situations in your life that require patience. That's what happens. But you'll come out better, much better on the other end. You certainly will. When I read this quote, I was mindful of the three times that he used the word never here. When you're saying this never happens, and what he's talking about is that it's a part of who we are. If it does happen, it's the exception. Why can we be patient? may sound simple, may, may come across as very simplistic, but because we know God is in charge. Do you rest in that? Do you rest in knowing that the sovereignty of God, the providence of God in our life is going to work? He's going to bring it together? We go to Romans 8.28. We know what He's doing. We have confidence even though we can't see it. And therefore, we can rest. We can have patience. We can wait for God. We can do that. Jesus was our example in long-suffering and in patience. He was rejected. He was falsely accused. He was abused. He was mocked. His family thought he was crazy, did they not? They thought he'd lost his mind. But he hadn't. He was just holy. However, 1 Timothy 1.16, However, for this reason, Paul says, I obtained mercy that in, my, that in me first Jesus Christ might show all long-suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on Him for everlasting life. And here is a verse of Scripture again from 1 Timothy. Paul is simply thanking God for His grace, for reaching down and touching Him and changing Him. You know, in other places he talks about <clears throat> he received grace because what he did, he says, I, I did it ignorantly, I did it foolishly. He just focusing upon the grace of God. A perfect example of someone who did not forget what they were called from. Paul didn't forget that. I mean, can you imagine the gulf that must have been between his ears when he realized what he believed, how he excelled in his Judaism and so forth, only to come to a point and understand that he had totally missed the mark. Can you imagine how humbling that must be? And I mention that only to say that's where we have to go. You know, Joel did a great job last Sunday of talking about that from the pulpit. Talking about, in from what is it, Psalm 130, talking about how, you know, you gotta, you got to be willing to own up, if you will, to your sin. you got to be willing to go there and look at how destitute, look at your great need. And that's what turns us in truth to Christ. That's what we don't need to forget. It changes the way that we think about ourselves, about God, and the way we think about others. Well, that's one verse. One verse. Thank God. I mean, there's just a lot of stuff here. Let me begin in verse 13. Because he talks about bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, he says, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. You know, we said earlier, a Christian without compassion is a contradiction. I'm quoting my old preacher friend, but I tell you this, somebody who don't forgive, somebody who can't find it within their heart to forgive, most definitely, as a believer, if they're a believer, has temporarily lost sight of what they've been redeemed from. Changes everything, does it not? Bearing with one another. It means to endure. It means to hold out in spite of persecution. It speaks of threats being persecuted or or threats coming upon you or some kind of injury or indifference uh, or complaints. And it says that we don't retaliate. That's not the first thing that we do. 
God's in charge. We bear with one another. Verses of Scripture that talk about bearing one another's problems and so forth. can't remember right where that is. It may be Galatians. It literally means to get up under the load. That's what it's talking about. Being willing to roll up your sleeves and get up under that load, that burden with someone else. This is what believers do. Again, because they're convinced of the great potential. They know that we're here. We're left here as believers for the very purpose of living out the Word of God, being a difference in someone's life. In 1 Corinthians 4, 12 and 13, Paul states, he says, And we labor, working with our own hands, being reviled, we bless. This is what came against him. Being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we endure, he says. Being defamed, we entreat. We have been made as the filth of the world, the offscoring of all things until now. In the New American Standard, it says, when it talks about being defamed and resulting, it says we entreat. He's talking about either we're being slandered, but our attitude is to seek reconciliation or to conciliate when slander takes place. We are, our goal is to reason with people, to help them understand. We understand perhaps their anger. We understand that if we're sharing Christ with them, that we're literally rocking their world. They think they're okay many times. When they lay their pillow on the bed at night, they rest, but they rest in deception. And then we come in and bring the truth, and it's supposed to arouse us, is it not? It's supposed to get our attention. It's supposed to bring a few sleepless nights. Nobody wants to go there, and they often equate that uncomfortable state with us and with our testimony. That will never change. That will never change. And we've got to be willing to go there. He says when we find ourselves being persecuted for telling the truth, for sharing the truth, for being who we are, for in His day, for being people of the way... We respond appropriately. We respond in love. We respond with the truth that will change people's lives and it's the only thing that will change them in a lasting and eternal way. That's what he shares. Bearing with one another. Forgiving one another. It just simply means to be gracious. That's our general attitude. Let somebody make a mistake. Let them see your disposition of godliness. That will get their attention. Allow God to use your example. He says plainly, even as Christ forgave you, you're to forgive. Christ is our gracious example. Demonstrated grace, particularly I say this in this time. This This is just me. Demonstrated grace is a very powerful thing. Very powerful thing. And we know that. We know that the opposite of that got Christ's attention. If you go to Luke chapter 15, and I know this from our study on the prodigal, the tale of two sons, this is what Jesus was doing with the listening Pharisees as he told that story. This was, in essence, their problem. What do you mean specifically, Mike? I mean that they did not get grace. They had no room in their understanding, their religion, for grace. It was all about works, it was all about merit. They didn't get it. And there's an aspect of our world today. Maybe it dominates in our world today. They do not get grace. Or if they do, they presume upon grace. They think it's cheap. It's something that can be bought. It's something that's given because of God's love. They don't understand what it requires and what it will produce in the life of a believer. John? The psalmist recognized that tension when in uh, chapter 19, he, part of his prayer was asking that the Lord would Yeah. Is that where the verse about presumption with sins, perhaps? Maybe not. Yes. Okay, yeah. 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 It's recognizable. And that's the human, that's the worldly uh, approach and response oftentimes to the grace of God, if not cheap grace. Yeah. Well, that's what he lays out for us. He tells us in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, 
again to the church at Ephesus and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. His message did not change, did it? Nope, it didn't change. It's important for people to see that we have been changed. Very important for us to see. I think probably that's a good place to stop. I prepared uh, to go on through verse 17. We're not even going to get close. and We can begin there perhaps if I get back to you. But let's be mindful today of what Paul is saying to us and what the Holy Spirit is saying to us today. And that the Spirit of God comes to bear on our life and when it does, it brings change in our life. All these changes aren't things that we just go through the Bible and look at and identify and say, oh, I'm going to work on that. It's a lot deeper than that. It allows us to do, as Paul said in other places, to examine ourselves. Because the general disposition, the, if you will, I struggle for words, the possession of these things is given to us by the grace of God. They're manifested as we yield to them, as we choose, as we did as Daniel did, as we purpose in our heart not to defile ourselves, as we do as John tells us to pull away from the world, to not love the world. We've covered all of these things from time to time. And we go back and ask ourselves, am I a humble person? Am I a meek person? Do I suffer long in patience? with other people? Is my attitude one that allows me to bear with other people? Even when they're just, there's a part of me that detests what they're doing, what they're saying. It kind of irks me as we say. But I haven't lost sight of the power of God. And maybe right now in a particular situation, it's the fact that I can stand in the Spirit of God and exude patience and kindness and humility. Maybe that's what that individual needs. I would submit to you that it is. Because it's what God through the Holy Spirit has chosen to equip us with as believers. We need that out in the world. We need that in this fellowship, do we not? Yes, we're to be patient with one another. Let's pray together.